Book One, Chapter Nine of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book One, The Boy Poet, eighteen nineteen to eighteen forty two. Chapter Nine: The Broken Chain, eighteen forty to eighteen forty one. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. That eighth of February, eighteen forty, when John Ruskin came of age, it seemed as though all the gifts of fortune had been poured into his lap. What his father's wealth and influence could do for him had been supplemented by a personal charm which found him friends among the best men of the best ranks. What his mother's care had done in fortifying his health and forming his character, native energy had turned to advantage. He had won a reputation already much wider and more appreciable as an artist and student of science and as a writer of prose and verse than undergraduates are entitled to expect. And, for crowning mercy, his head was not turned. He was reading extremely hard, in for his degree examination next Easter term. His college tutor hoped he would get a first. From that it was an easy step to holy orders, and with his opportunities preferment was certain. On his twenty-first birthday, his father, who had sympathised with his admiration for Turner enough to buy two pictures, the Richmond Bridge and the Gosport, for their Hearn Hill drawing-room, now gave him a picture, all to himself, for his new rooms in St. Algates, the Winchelsea, and settled on him a handsome allowance of pocket-money. The first use he made of his wealth was to buy another turner. In the Easter vacation he met Mr. Griffith, the dealer, at the private view of the old watercolour society, and hearing that the Harlick Castle was for sale, he bought it there and then, with a characteristic disregard for money which has always made the vendors of pictures and books and minerals find him extremely pleasant to deal with. But as his love affair had shown his mother how little he had taken to heart her chiefest care for him, so this first business transaction was a painful awakening to his father, the canny Scotch merchant who had heaped up riches hoping that his son would gather them. This Harlick Castle transaction, however, was not altogether unlucky. It brought him an introduction to the painter, whom he met when he was next in town, at Mr Griffith's house. He knew well enough the popular idea of Turner as a morose and niggardly, inexplicable man. As he had seen faults in Turner's painting, so he was ready to acknowledge the faults in his character. But while the rest of the world, with a very few exceptions, dwelt upon the faults, Ruskin had penetration to discern the virtues which they hid. Few passages in his autobiography are more striking than the transcript from his journal of the same evening, recording his first impression. I found in him a somewhat eccentric, keen-mannered, matter-of-fact, English-minded gentleman, good-natured, evidently, bad-tempered, evidently, hating humbug of all sorts, 
shrewd, perhaps a little selfish, highly intellectual, the powers of the mind not brought out with any delight in their manifestation or intention of display, but flashing out occasionally in a word or a look. Pretty close that, he adds later, and full, to be set down at the first glimpse, and set down the same evening. Turner was not a man to make an intimate of, all at once. The acquaintanceship continued, and it ripened into as close a confidence as the eccentric painter's habits of life permitted. He seemed to have been more at home with the father than with the son. But even when the young man took to writing books about him, he did not, as Carlyle is reported to have done in a parallel case, show his exponent to the door. The occasion of John Ruskin's coming to town this time was not a pleasant one, nothing less than the complete breakdown of his health. It is true that he was working very hard during this spring, but hard reading does not of itself kill people, only when it is combined with real and prolonged mental distress, acting upon a sensitive temperament. The case was thought serious, reading was stopped, and the patient was ordered abroad for the winter. For that summer there was no hurry to be gone. Rest was more needed than change at first. Late in September the same family party crossed the sea to Calais. How different a voyage for them all from the merry departures of bygone Maytides. Which way should they turn? Not to Paris, for there was the cause of all these ills. So they went straight southwards, through Normandy to the Loire, and saw the chateau and churches from Orléans to Tours, famous for their Renaissance architecture and for the romance of their chivalric history. Amboise especially made a strong impression upon the languid and unwilling invalid. It stirred him up to write, in easy verse, the tale of love and death that his own situation too readily suggested. In The Broken Chain, he indulged his gloomy fancy, turning, as it was sure to do, into a morbid nightmare of mysterious horror not without reminiscence of Coleridge's Christabel. But through it all he preserved, so to speak, his dramatic incognito. His own disappointment and his own anticipated death were the motives of the tale, but treated in such a manner as not to betray his secret, nor even to wound the feelings of the lady who now was beyond appeal from an honourable lover, taking his punishment like a man. This poem lasted him for private writing all through that journey, a fit emblem of the broken life which it records. A healthier source of distraction was his drawing, in which he received a fresh impetus from the exhibition of David Roberts's sketches in the East. More delicate than Prout's work, entering into the detail of architectural form more thoroughly, and yet suggesting chiaroscuro, with broad washes of quiet tone and touches of light, cleverly introduced. That marvellous pop of light across the foreground, Harding said, of the picture of the Great Pyramid. These drawings were the mean between the limited manner of Prout and the inimitable fullness of Turner. Ruskin took up the fine pencil and the broad brush, and with that blessed habit of industry which has helped so many a one through times of trial, made sketch after sketch on the half-imperial board, finished just so far as his strength and time allowed, as they passed from the Loire to the mountains of the Auvergne and to the valley of the Rhone, 
and thence slowly round the Riviera to Pisa and Florence and Rome. He was not in a mood to sympathise readily with the enthusiasms of other people. They expected him to be delighted with the scenery, the buildings, the picture galleries of Italy, and to forget himself in admiration. He did admire Michelangelo, and he was interested in the back streets and slums of the cities. Something piquant was needed to arouse him. The mild ecstasies of common connoisseurship hardly appealed to a young man between life and death. He met the friends to whom he had brought introductions, Mr. Joseph Seven, who had been Keats's companion and was afterwards to be the genial consul at Rome, and the two Messrs. Richmond, then studying art in the regular professional way, one of them to become a celebrated portrait painter and the father of men of mark. But his views on art were not theirs. He was already too independent and outspoken in praise of his own heroes, and too sick in mind and body to be patient and to learn. They had not been a month in Rome before he took the fever. As soon as he was recovered, they went still farther south and loitered for a couple of months in the neighbourhood of Naples, visiting the various scenes of interest, Sorrento, Amalfi, Salerno. The adventures of this journey are partly told in letters to Mr Dale and in the letters addressed to a college friend. On the way to Naples, he had noted and sketched the winter scene at La Riccia, which he afterwards used for a glowing passage in modern painters, and he had ventured into a village of brigands to draw such a castle as he had once imagined in his Leone. From Naples, he wrote an account of a landslip near Giannio, and sent it home to the Ashmolean Society. He seemed better. They turned homewards when suddenly he was seized with all the old symptoms worse than ever. After another month in Rome, they travelled slowly northwards from town to town, spent ten days of May at Venice, and passed through Milan and Turin and over the Mont Cenis to Geneva. At last he was among the mountains again, the Alps that he loved. It was not only that the air of the Alps braced him, but the spirit of mountain worship stirred him as nothing else could. At last he seemed himself, after more than a year of intense depression, and he records that one day, in church at Geneva, he resolved to do something, to be something useful. That he could make such a resolve was a sign of returning health. But if, as I find, he had just been reading Carlyle's lately published lectures on heroes, though he did not then accept Carlyle's conclusions nor admire his style, might he not, in spite of his criticism, have been spurred the more into energy by that enthusiastic gospel of action? They travelled home by Basel and Leon, but London in August and the premature attempt to be energetic brought on a recurrence of the symptoms of consumption, as it was called. He wished to try the mountain cure again and set out with his friend Richard Fall for a tour in Wales, but his father recalled him to Leamington to try iron and dieting under Dr. Jeffson, who, if he was called a quack, was a sensible one, and successful in subduing for several years to come the more serious phases of the disease. The patient was not cured. He suffered from time to time from his chest, and still more from a weakness of the spine, which during all the period of his early manhood gave him trouble. 
and finished by bending his tall and lithe figure into something that, were it not for his face, would be deformity. In 1847 he was again at Leamington under Jefferson, in consequence of a relapse into the consumptive symptoms, after which we hear no more of it. He outgrew the tendency, as so many do. But nevertheless the alarm had been justifiable, and the malady had left traces which, in one way or another, haunted him ever after. For one of the worst effects of illness is to be marked down as an invalid. At Leamington, then, in September 1841, he was finding a new life under the doctor's dieting and new aims in life, which were eventually to resolder for a while the broken chain. Among the Scotch friends of the Ruskins, there was a family at Perth whose daughter came to visit at Hearn Hill, the Effie Gray, whom afterwards he married. She challenged the melancholy John, engrossed in his drawing and geology, to write a fairy tale, as the least likely task for him to fulfil, upon which he produced, at a couple of sittings, The King of the Golden River, a pretty medley of Grimm's grotesque and Dickens's kindliness and the true Ruskinian ecstasy of the Alps. End of Book One Chapter Nine Recording by Graham Arrowsmith.